like to direct your attention to today are found in the book of Acts. Uh, my intention this morning is to provide an overview of Acts, uh, which is the next book that we'll be studying together as a church. Simply put, Acts is a record of the birth and growth of the church. And it's, it's truly remarkable to see how God uses, beginning with the twelve, uses those men in His Word to proclaim the gospel to every nation. It's remarkable to see how God brings about that growth. Acts records God using miracles of healing to spread His Word and to strengthen His church. He heals Dorcas and Eutychus. But he also uses tragedies like the deaths of key leaders, Stephen and James. There are imprisonments, there's beatings, plots to kill the apostles. But also there's miraculous deliverances from from the imprisonment. The Holy Spirit demonstrates his power by casting out demons and saving thousands, sometimes on a single day. But he also kills a couple for lying to the church about how much they gave. In every place the gospel goes, people get saved, but they also get persecuted shortly after they get saved. Sometimes horrifically. Sometimes he uses astonishing miracles to spread his word, but sometimes he also just uses excruciating pain. And so the message of Acts is immediately relevant to us as a church. As a church, we've had more people attending since I've been at the church. We've outgrown this facility. God's miraculously, well, miraculous maybe is an overstatement, but certainly an answer to prayer provided a facility which we'll move to in a month. And also in answer to years of prayer, we just installed four new leaders, two new elders and two new deacons just last week. But, you know, a few weeks ago, we found out Jeremy, just five years old, was diagnosed with a rare and deadly disease. And then just just this, just this week, Don lost his son. And this is the second son they lost to similar circumstances. And so the questions abound. Why does God do this? What's He up to? Because it doesn't make sense. I certainly can't explain. I don't know what God is up to in the particulars of these situations, but I do know what He's up to in the big picture of His will. And that he's, he's fulfilling his plan of redemption that he promised way back in the Old Testament. And this is what God is up to in the book of Acts. And so in order to really understand the book of Acts, we need to read it in the context of the Old Testament. And this is actually purposely evident to us in the book itself, because it is chock full of Old Testament texts that are cited in many sermons And so, if you were to summarize the message of the book of Acts, I would say it should be something like this. The purpose of Acts is to demonstrate how God is fulfilling His redemptive purpose that was promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, and now being brought to fruition through the preaching 
of his word to the church. So what I want to emphasize is Acts isn't the beginning of God's plan of redemption. It's midway through. This is God's just fulfilling something he began way back in Genesis. And here in Acts, we're seeing him fill, fulfill his redemptive purpose through the church. As many of you know, Acts was written by the, um, the man named Luke, a physician. It's actually the second part of the narrative that he, of the Gospel of Luke that he also wrote. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke explained very clearly that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah. The one promised in the Old Testament, the Son of God, who came to fulfill all those promises made in the Old Covenant. Christ would fulfill it and actually even establish a new covenant. But first and most important in that step of redemption is that Christ needed to pay the price for sins, which he did by dying on the cross. And that's what Luke narrates. And I want you to notice the final words of Christ recorded in Luke's gospel. So flip over to Luke, the prelude to the book of Acts. Gospel of Luke, the last, the last words of Christ are these. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. That in everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And then notice what? And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of the kings, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So notice what Christ particularly wants them to know. First, that everything in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. All those promises have to be fulfilled. Because God's word is not just theory. It's not just good advice, sometimes true. It is truth. It is absolute truth itself. And so everything that was proclaimed about God's plan of redemption had to be fulfilled. Secondly, Jesus reminds them that the Old Testament made clear that the Messiah or Christ must suffer. But then he would rise from the dead. And that's what happened. And thirdly, the next thing that would take place in God's plan to save people is seen in verse 47. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And this is what Luke will record takes place in the book of Acts. Redemption for all people beginning from Jerusalem begins to be proclaimed. And then fourthly, Jesus tells them how that feat will be accomplished. Verse 49, God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would actually come and indwell 
these redeemed people, empowering them to accomplish this grand purpose of redemption. God is going to allow sinners to participate in his work of saving souls. And the Gospel of Luke ends then with the account of Christ's ascension to the Father, which is where Acts actually begins. So if you flip again over to Acts, I'm going to just guide us through this book and its main teachings. The dominant theme in Acts is the spread of the gospel. And there's both a geographic element to this as well as an ethnic element. The first part of the book of Acts focuses on the Lord's work in Jerusalem. As Jesus says, beginning in Jerusalem. And then it advances from Jerusalem throughout Judea and into Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this begins with the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When Jews from other countries scattered throughout the world come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost and they're miraculously given the ability to... um, Speak in tongues or the the Jews that are there hear the apostles speaking in tongues in their language from the countries where they come from. And at first there's no evidence of the gospel actually spreading to these nations because the people who get saved as they hear the gospel being proclaimed by the apostles appear to want to remain in Jerusalem because this incredible spiritual blessing they're experiencing, great unity, great fellowship. They're seeing great power being displayed, both in their relationships, but actually in miracles as well. And so, despite this command given to spread, the disciples don't spread until Stephen's martyred. And this, it says in Acts 8, 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then it describes how the work of Philip spreads the gospel into the region of Samaria and and with an Ethiopian eunuch. And apparently that guy brings the gospel to his country of Ethiopia. And so by the end of chapter 8, there's evidence that the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea through Samaria into the Gentile countries surrounding Jerusalem, but not yet to the ends of the earth. And that begins in Acts chapter 9. When the very man who instigated the stoning of Stephen, Saul of Tarsus, gets saved on the Damascus Road. And God raises him up, of all people, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts 9, the Lord declares that after his conversion, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for, my, for the sake of my name. Acts 9.15. And really the rest of Acts is the fulfillment of these words. As it traces the preaching and teaching ministry of Paul as he goes throughout Asia and then into Europe. And the book ends with Paul in Rome, which is significant because that's the pagan seat of power at the time. It is, in a sense, the ends of the earth. God's setting up his church even where paganism is is, is deeply rooted and working its evil. 
So the book of Acts is a record of God spreading the good news of salvation to every tribe, to every tongue and nation throughout the world in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But it's important for us to note, especially how that work actually gets accomplished, how this how this plan of redemption comes to fruition. And I'll summarize it this way through power, spiritual power, through preaching, prayer, various problems and persecution. As you read the book of Acts, you will note that cycles of these things happen again and again and again and again. God uses all these things. And you'll notice that not all these things are good. God demonstrates his power actually by using both the good, pleasant, wonderful, magnificent things as well as the excruciatingly painful, horrific things. Let's look first at how he uses his power. The power of the Holy Spirit is expressed in the spreading of the word from the very beginning of Acts. Because when the Holy Spirit arrives, he does so in a demonstration of of significant powers, people are able to actually speak in languages they never knew before, clearly. And then soon after that, in Acts chapter 3, the Apostle Peter heals a well-known lame beggar, so much so that it causes the city to be in a turmoil. And then in chapter 8, Simon the Magician is so impressed by the power of the Holy Spirit, he actually asks to buy it. In chapter 20, verse 10, Paul raises Eutychus from the dead. When Paul's shipwrecked on Malta en route to Rome, he's, he ends up getting bitten by a deadly viper and just shakes it off. No harms come to him. And then the people are drawn and he's able to, to share the gospel with them. And he actually even heals the, the head man of the island's um, father. And then after that man's healed, everyone else as well, and the, and the gospel spreads on Malta. And so as the gospel spread, the Holy Spirit is affirming its validity, affirming the words of the apostles that what they're saying is true, and it's validated by these miracles. Because how, is, how are people to know whether they're not just making this up or if it's real? Well, when God demonstrates His power, people know, okay, these guys are legit. But the primary way that God demonstrates his power is not actually through the miracles. It's actually through preaching. This is the primary way God chooses to build his church. And Acts is chock full of sermons. In fact, a third of the book is sermons, speeches, teaching. That's stunning to think about. And it's also very purposeful. God's communicating something in the genre of Acts being so much sermons. And usually these sermons spring from Old Testament texts to show us that this isn't just a new thing God is doing. God's actually fulfilling what he had promised years and years and really centuries before. And it's not just a sheer amount of preaching in Acts, but specific texts actually declare the primacy of preaching. After the church is established at Pentecost, it says in Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And it produces growth. Later on, when the angel releases the apostles from prison in Acts 5, the angel tells them this, verse 20, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Like, what does the, what does the, the angel want them to do? Go teach. Go spread. Go proclaim. Do what Christ told you to do. That's how this church is going to get built. And they obeyed. And in obeying, they're actually admonished by the leaders in Jerusalem in 540, who after beating them, then charged them, then warned them to stop teaching. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. So what did the apostles do? They left the presence of the council rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They're going to obey God rather than men. And then in Acts 6, when the apostles recognized that there's this conflict within the church because some widows were getting overlooked, not wanting to be distracted from their responsibility of teaching and prayer, they appoint deacons to help them. They said it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. After the apostle Paul was saved in Acts 9, it says in verse 20, immediately, immediately after he was saved, he went and proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. In Acts 10, when the gospel comes to the Gentiles, Peter acknowledges that Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And then it was actually through preaching when the Gentiles hear this, what what Peter just said, that it's in hearing the word of God preached to them. That's when the Holy Spirit actually comes upon the Gentiles. Says this in Acts 10, 44, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. How was it poured out? Through preaching. And as the word is preached, the word spreads repeatedly. The book says things like this. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12, after being persecuted, the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Verse 20, uh, chapter 19, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Think about that. The Holy Spirit personifies the word of God as that which is accomplishing this plan of redemption. Yes, it's through the apostles, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but in one particular means. It's through preaching and teaching Christ. It actually appears that the book is structured based upon these textual affirmations that the word of God increased. And so this is generally how I would outline the book. 
based upon these statements about the word of God increasing. The word increases from Jerusalem to the apostles through the apostles. Chapters one through six. The word then increases in Judea and Samaria through the deacons and others. Through chapter 12. The word increases in Asia Minor and Greece through Paul. Chapters 13 through 19. And then the emphasis of the last section is the word increasing despite intense persecution. In fact, most of that second section is Paul getting attacked and then Paul being imprisoned and then proclaiming again and again his testimony and the fact that Christ is indeed the Messiah. So Acts really demonstrates what God said would happen through the prophet Isaiah. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is spread and accomplishes purpose through preaching. But prayer is also repeated emphasis. It's not as dominant as the theme is preaching, but it's scattered throughout. Again and again, we see this cycle of the disciples pleading and praying and God answering prayer. And how God directly works in response to those prayers. So, for instance, immediately following the ascension of Christ, the first thing we find the church doing is actually praying. Because they didn't know what to do. If you don't know what to do, pray. And in, 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 in praying, what we're doing is we're, in, we're, we're casting our cares upon God. We're saying we need help. We're uncertain. We're desperate for you. We trust you to do what you need to do because we don't know what to do. And so that's what they do. Acts 1.14, and, and these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They weren't just praying before a meal. They were devoted to prayer. Because they knew the power of prayer. And then following the revival at Pentecost, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. The reason, again, that the apostles appointed the deacons is so that they could be freed up both to teach, but also to pray. The apostles knew they needed not only to be freed up to teach, but they needed time to pray. To pray for individuals, to pray for people groups to pay pray for one another in their ministries for protection for wisdom they knew they needed prayer not just preaching when the gospel comes to the gentiles in acts 10 tax 10 it's actually in direct response to the prayers of cornelius a gentile centurion this is what it says acts 10:31 an angel comes to Cornelius and says, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. It was in a direct response to prayer that the Gentiles get the Holy Spirit. And then when Peter's in prison, in Acts 12, he was miraculously released in response to prayer. It says that the uh, verse Acts 12, verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And the church is actually still in prayer for him when he gets released and he shows up at the house 
And the servant girl doesn't want to let him in because she's so astonished because they had basically given him up for dead. Peter's released miraculously through prayer. In Acts 16, when Pilate, Paul and Silas were miraculously imprisoned, sorry, released from prison, it was in response to prayer. It was after they were singing hymns and praying that they were released. So we see that God worked throughout the book of Acts in direct response to prayer. But he also surprisingly uses various problems to bring about the church's growth as well. As the word advances throughout the world, the church encounters various problems that it has to deal with. And there's cycles of this in every stage of the gospel's advancement. After it was established at Pentecost, it immediately faced the threat of sin within the church. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and to the apostles about how much money they had given. And the Holy Spirit strikes them dead. And then Luke says the result was that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Then in Acts chapter 6, the church is threatened by a division because not all the, the people were getting cared for in the division of food. And this leads to the appointment of deacons. And the section closes with these words. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And as the gospel spreads to the Gentiles, the church faces the problem of whether they, the, these Gentiles should be required to, requ- to follow all the tenets of the Old Testament law. The Jews were still following it. Should the Gentiles also, because many of those laws were set up for Jews not to associate with Gentiles. So now what are they supposed to do? Well, they bring the issue to the Jerusalem Council and they conclude that the Gentiles don't have to follow the Mosaic law. And when Barnabas and Paul report this decision to uh, the church in Antioch, this was the effect. And when they read it, that is the, the decision of the Jerusalem Council, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So the biblical resolution to the problem is what led to increased joy and encouragement within the church. But that was through a problem. God used conflict and then a godly response to that conflict, that question, that the consternation, that that's how the church actually grew. Like we grow often through adversity, and that's what we see in Acts. But the greatest problem that the church faced was that of persecution. In every place the gospel is proclaimed, it's almost immediately followed by persecution. And usually that's from the Jews. As the word spreads in Jerusalem, the apostles are initially threatened by the Sanhedrin. They're beaten and thrown in prison. They tell them to stop preaching Christ. The apostles refuse. And that's why shortly thereafter, Stephen is stoned. It's because they wouldn't stop preaching. A godly man, full of the Holy Spirit, stoned. And Saul of Tarsus was the one instigating all of it. 
And this persecution by Saul leads to the dispersion of the church throughout the world. Right? They're, 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 everybody was in Jerusalem until persecution. Whew. Then it spreads. And of all people, Saul, the persecutor, is then appointed by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And outside of the Jerusalem, actually, the, the, Paul's strategy, would he would, when he went to a new town, is he'd go first to a synagogue. And he would just proclaim Christ from the Old Testament. And usually, he was well received by the Jews that hear him. But then after he articulates that the gospel goes to the Gentiles, that's when hostility arises. When Paul preaches in Antioch, he concludes his message this way. He says, For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, it says, they began rejoicing and glorifying God, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Next verse, verse 50, Acts 13. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So they move on to Iconium. And then it, in Iconium it says, Now at Iconium they entered the, together in the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both the Jews and Greeks believed. Verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they're getting persecuted by Jews, they're getting persecuted by Gentiles because the Jews are stirring up the Gentiles. Paul moves on to Lystra. And then initially they're received with great warmth. In fact, says so they even think they're gods. Until the Jews in, uh, from Antioch and Iconium, the previous two cities, arrive and stir up the crowds against them. And the crowds turn on them because of the Jews. In Acts 17, the same pattern happens in Thessalonica. In Acts 18, the same pattern happens in Corinth. When Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem in chapter 21, he's immediately attacked by the Jews. A riot is caused. And, and until the tribune has to rush in and separate Paul from being mobbed. And he, but he gives Paul the chance to share his testimony. And Paul starts to preach in Hebrew. They hear the Hebrew and they're like, okay, this guy's one of us. Let's hear what he has to say. And Paul tells his testimony of how he was once a persecutor of the church. Now he's devoted to Christ. And they listen, they hang on his words. Until he says this, referring to Christ, he says, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And it says up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And you mark what made them so angry. The Gentiles do not deserve our gift. It's our Messiah, our covenant blessings. We're supposed to be separated from the Gentiles. They are unholy. We are holy. That's what got them so angry. It wasn't the Gentiles 
gift. It was God's covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. So they interpreted it. Right? It was the covenant with Abraham as you would be a blessing to all nations. Which they, of course, had forgotten. And this leads Paul to being sent to Rome to be tried before Caesar. And he preaches to the Jews in Rome. And the last words he speaks in the book of Acts are these. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. The Gentiles will listen, Paul says. But very few of the Jews did. Even though that's always who Paul went to first, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And this hostile opposition to the Jews is not accidental. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, there's so much the prophets that spoke exactly to this. The men who have been in our Sunday night discipleship group have been seeing this again and again in the prophets and the minor prophets that the, the, the Jews were steadily hardening their heart against God. And no matter how much he disciplined them, they refused to repent till even he sent them their own, his own son. God sent his own son and they killed him. And then he says, okay, now to the, to the Gentiles. Paul explains this in Romans 11, that God has extended the gospel to the Gentiles in order to make the Jews jealous for God. He's using it to provoke their attention so that they might come back. Our, the, the fact that we get the gospel is because, because the Jews rejected their Messiah. God's using that horrific incident for our benefit. And that's why in Romans 11.25 he says... I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, in this way, all Israel will be saved. As is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what he's saying is the Jews will eventually repent. The Jews will eventually receive all the benefits that were promised to them in the old covenant and in the new covenant. They will get it, but not until after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that's why Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And then the end will come. So they will eventually repent in mass and embrace Christ as their Savior. But this won't be until all the Gentiles have come in, until they've heard the gospel. To which Paul concludes, quoting Job, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So Acts demonstrates the sovereign power of God 
to bring about his sovereign purposes. He uses whatever he wants to accomplish his sovereign will. He uses good things and difficult things. Sometimes he uses astonishing miracles. And sometimes he uses excruciating pain. And this is important for us to grasp today. Because we need to, we need to believe that spiritual growth is not usually going to be pleasant. We live in such an entertainment-soaked, comfort-soaked culture that we think if we just give minimal effort, we'll be fine. We'll grow. The church will grow if we just do the minimum. We don't have to labor and strive and box as one beating the air like Paul. We just need to go to church on Sundays, listen to Christian music throughout the week sometimes, that's we're tempted to believe that. But it's hard. And it's not only that not only does it cost us effort, but also comes often at great pain as our faith is tried through trials and tribulations. Just because we live in the twenty first century with all our technology and resources doesn't mean that gospel ministry is going to be any easier. It's not going to be any easier for us to grow in the 21st century as it was for the church in the first. And so when God allows tragedy to strike our lives and our church, we shouldn't panic. We should remember what Paul told the churches in Acts 14.22 that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So what do we do when these tragedies strike? When a five-year-old is diagnosed with a rare disease, we lose one of our sons. Right, the constant question we ask is, how can we help? What can we do? How can we honor God as individuals and as a church? We're not, we're not apostles with miracle working power. We can pray, we can plead with God to do that, and He can if He chooses. But we can't just personally will to bring about a miracle. Super, supernatural power is something in God's hand. He used it, but it's in His hands. He needs to decide that. Problems and persecutions are, are things that are going to naturally arise as we're faithful. We don't seek them, certainly, but they'll come. What we can do to bring about growth in ourselves and in the church is we can actively devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. This is what we can do when those we love face tribulation, but it's also what we can do for ourselves to prepare for those times. Because it's in our depth of understanding, our intimacy with God, our growth individually that prepares us for those storms. We don't know when they're going to happen. But the way to prepare ourselves when they do happen 
is to devote ourselves before they happen to the word of God in prayer. Devote. Not just when it's convenient. We need to devote ourselves to these things. This is what will keep us stable in the storms that God brings and what will keep us stable in the blessings He brings. Because God will bless us and it's easy to get proud and elated or casual or cavalier. And that could also take us off into dangerous places. He can bring storms and we become fearful, anxious, self-pitiful. But it's devoting ourselves to the Word of God and to praying that will keep us stable. And that's also what will bring about spiritual growth in ourselves and also in the church as a whole. So let's commend our work to the Lord. Father, we know we're not anywhere close to the maturity that we need to be. And you say that every vine connected to the branch that you desire to bear fruit, you will prune. And so, Lord, we welcome the pruning so that we might bear true spiritual fruit. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to pretend. We want real faith. We want real power. We want real boldness, real humility, real love. And we know that comes at a cost. Teach us, Lord. Help us to take up our cross and follow you. And to love like you love. We ask these things in Christ's name.